Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the honor of reconnecting with Dr. Rick Johnson. We connected in 2022 for podcast episode 205. He is a professor of medicine at the University of Colorado and is also a clinician and researcher. He's an international expert on sugar and fructose and has made many discoveries on how sugar and fructose play a role in obesity, diabetes, and Alzheimer's disease. He is an absolutely delightful interview. He is so gracious and humble. And I had the honor of meeting him in real life at Low Carb Denver in February of 2023. Today, we dove deep into new research on the interrelationship between Alzheimer's and fructose, the role of inflammation, mitochondrial dysfunction, and insulin resistance, how Alzheimer's is the sixth leading cause of death, and how the role of the survival switch can induce changes within the body that make it more likely for us to be prone to insulin resistance and diabetes and Alzheimer's disease. We discussed the differences between high fructose corn syrup and fructose found in sugar, differences between processed salt and more natural forms of salt, the role of hydration, the impact of the standard American diet, the relationship between alcohol and sugar, as well as the role of mood and fructose and uric acid, and that it induces foraging behaviors, which increase impulsivity and also a propensity for non-alcoholic fatty deliver disease, as well as many other health issues. I know you will find this conversation as enlightening and helpful as I did. Dr. Rick Johnson, it's a pleasure to have you back on the podcast. Wonderful to be back on your podcast, Cynthia. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you reached out because you were definitely one of the most downloaded podcasts in 2022. You make learning about fructose and the impact on our body fun, and you make the information accessible. And that is a gift. And so I want to make sure we start the conversation, just (laughs) acknowledging that you have the ability to to translate complicated concepts into making them tangible for the general public. That is just very nice to hear. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You're welcome. And your infectious enthusiasm. That's one of the things that I was reflecting on. Dr. Johnson and I met in real life at Low Carb Denver this past February. And I remember talking to Ben Azadi and I said, Rick is as nice in person as he is over Zoom links. And I said, it's so nice when you recognize that there are so many clinicians and researchers doing really amazing work to help change lives And they're as good at what they do as they are as a human being. So let's start the conversation there, just acknowledging that. But you mentioned when you reached out that there was some emerging research. And I know that you and Dr. Perlmutter and Dr. Bredesen had just published a research article talking about Alzheimer's. And I think for most of the listeners, either they themselves or loved ones or family members are struggling with changes in cognition. So how does fructose impact brain health profoundly? Well, it turns out that fructose probably has a really important role in Alzheimer's disease. And we 
published a paper just a few months ago with, as you mentioned, David Perlmutter, who's a, a famous neurologist and writer, and Dale Bredesen, who's kind of a, is a world expert on Alzheimer's. And we had a whole group of scientists write this paper, and we made the case that this, the fructose story might be the best explanation for the development of Alzheimer's. And there's never really, as far as I'm aware, there's never really been a story that begins from the beginning to the end. You know, there's things that can explain this part of Alzheimer's or this part, but nothing that really tells the whole story. And so the power of this hypothesis, and it's a hypothesis, but it's extraordinarily supported, really suggests that sugar, which contains fructose, is at the heart of Alzheimer's disease. And so um, I don't know if you, I can present the evidence or how you want me to do it, but we can just begin with one thing and just you know, kind of remind people that Alzheimer's disease is extremely common disease. It's now the sixth most common cause of death. Just about everybody knows someone who has it or, or, and, or has had it. And it's a terrible disease. It's one that's horrible to watch and horrible to have. It's just a sometimes slow and sometimes more rapid deterioration in your mental status. And it's characterized by three findings. One, the brain shrinks, uh, terrible, and it will shrink and continue to shrink with the loss of the brain cells, the neurons. And so that's kind of a, the center problem. And it's characterized by two additional things. One is there are these amyloid plaques, which are kind of like these type of protein that kind of forms plaques in the brain outside the neurons. And then there's the neurons themselves will accumulate a protein called tau. And these tau aggregates and really screws up how the neurons think or work. And so when this disease was first described in the early 20th century, it was thought to be pretty rare. And there were only like 30 cases reported for the first 50 years. One of the problems is that they thought that if you got dementia when you're like over 70 or over 75, that that was, you know, a normal process to some extent, that it was called senile dementia. And then they started realizing that most of these cases were Alzheimer's. So that, you know, there was kind of an under-reporting of the number of cases But there is clear evidence that Alzheimer's has been increasing, even with taking that into consideration, that it's been increasing uh, significantly over the last number of decades. And it's probably continuing to increase. And it correlates with the intake of sugar and with obesity and diabetes. And obesity and diabetes are risk factors for Alzheimer's. So, you know, originally... uh, Scientists said, okay, this is a disease caused by the accumulation of amyloid and of this tau protein. So there are literally a race to try to figure out how to block those amyloid plaques. And there were treatments that were aimed at inhibiting the production or degrading it. And over 20 different drugs went to market or went to test trials, I should say. And basically, they all failed. There are a couple that have just a little bit of benefit and they've been approved, but we're talking pretty, you know, marginal benefit and lots of side effects. 
And so it's been a disappointment. And people have started wondering, well, could the original hypothesis be wrong? Maybe it's not an amyloid disorder. Maybe it's something else. And so they started looking at the earliest stages of Alzheimer's, and they found three characteristic findings that seem to occur even really before the amyloid plaques become prominent. And the first one is that there's low-grade inflammation, inflammation in the brain, low-grade, very low-grade, but you can measure it. The second thing is that the energy factories that are in those neurons, you know, they're making energy. The brain consumes a lot of energy, consumes like you know, it's amazing how much energy the brain consumes compared to the rest of the body. It's a high energy user. And that's because those neurons need to need energy to really work at their max. And so the energy is produced in the neurons through these things called mitochondria, which are these energy factories, and they can generate large amounts of ATP, which is the fuel that the neurons use. And that fuel goes down. In the very beginning, earliest uh, level, you know, studies showing very, very early on, there's like a 10% drop in the ATP levels. And that's pretty significant. And by the time, you know, dementia is really full blown, the amount of energy in the neurons is down 30, 40%. I mean, it's, it's low. So it's a dementia is kind of a low energy state. And we see the same thing in obesity. Obesity is a low energy state. The ATP levels are low, even though fat produces energy. So fat is like stored energy, but the active energy, the ATP, tends to be low in people with obesity, with diabetes, with metabolic syndrome. And even as we age, and actually the whole issue of aging is associated with kind of a fall in ATP. And it's we now know that that's because the mitochondria, these energy factories, are getting sick. And so as the energy factories get sick, there's less ATP and you kind of go into a low energy mode. So you got inflammation, low ATP. And then the third one is that the brain starts, you know, uh, the brain actually uh, uses glucose as its main fuel. And, you know, glucose is in carbs, obviously. And we have a lot of glucose in our blood and the brain's constantly taking it up. Now, Many areas of the brain do not require insulin. So that, you know, it's, there's no need for insulin. The brain cells have figured out how to take up the glucose independently of insulin. But a certain part of the brain, particularly like the memory centers and the cortex, the main part that does the thinking, a lot of those areas use insulin to take up glucose. And what happens is there's a defect where the glucose is not being taken up very well and not being metabolized even when it gets in. So the glucose, uh, and we call it insulin resistance, and it's the same finding you see with diabetes and obesity, except it's in the brain. It's insulin resistance in the brain. It's, and even if the glucose gets in, it's also not being utilized well by those mitochondria. So you have a problem with the fuel getting there and a problem with the energy being produced from the fuel. And you can imagine if you're not getting the energy in and you're not getting that glucose, that those neurons are basically starving. So really, you can call it a starvation state. Alzheimer's is a, is a state where we're starving our brains. Even when we have tons of food aboard, we're eating, we got all this 
uh, food we're eating, but it's not getting and being used by the organ that needs that we want to protect the most. So this is the problem. Weight gain is one of many symptoms that our hormones are in decline, especially as we navigate perimenopause into menopause. Dr. Anna, who is a great friend of mine, is an OBGYN who's treated thousands of women just like you and I who experience increasing dryness and even pain in the bedroom as they get older. Jolva is the solution Dr. Anna formulated for her own clients, and it has since been loved by over 100,000 women. It's a feminine cream with DHEA that helps the body regenerate moisture from the inside out. 92.8% of Jolva users experienced a significant improvement in the first four to eight weeks. Get 10% off your first purchase of Jolva by using the link dranna.com slash Cynthia. That's DrAnna.com, Cynthia, and get 10% off your first purchase. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients, and it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeca during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy, provide mental clarity, and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals, and neutralizes lactic acid, all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix that needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. I think it's really interesting. And you're helping to paint this picture of what is going on physiologically in the brain as this kind of Alzheimer's picture is evolving. And maybe we pivot just a second to talk about how our modern day lifestyles, the foods we're, like I say, choosing to consume. Last night I was putting out on social media, it was, you know, a little snapshot of one of these paragraphs that I was reading. And it was talking about the 50% of the processed carbs from our standard American diet can generate enough fructose. So again, different type of molecule to increase the risk for Alzheimer's. So understanding this interrelationship between- how we choose to eat and how that actually puts us at risk for developing neurocognitive issues. I think you're right on the money there. So when, if we go right back to this one comment, you know, we've got three findings that precede amyloid, insulin resistance, inflammation, and mitochondrial dysfunction. So your question is, okay, so we're going back, but can we even go farther back? Can we go back to the very beginnings of what triggers what is associated with Alzheimer's? And here's what it is. First off, there are certain foods that have been reported to increase the risk for Alzheimer's. One are processed foods. You know, all those processed foods filled with sugar and salt that we, a lot of people love, you know, the chips and stuff that you're eating in the afternoon that have been, have a little sugar in it, have a little salt. 
You know, a lot of people know about this stuff. We know it's bad, but did you know that it increases your risk for Alzheimer's? Papers show an epidemiological link. Now, another one is sugar itself, soft drinks. There's even studies that show that the number of soft drinks you drink in, you know, is associated in a mathematical way with an increased risk for Alzheimer's. The more soft drinks you drink, the higher the risk you're going to get it. And guess what? They did CT scans in one study, uh, you know, that was, and they found that those people drinking like more than two soft drinks a week had an increased risk, risk for a smaller brain, a shrinking brain. I mean, everyone, brain size varies, right? But for shrinking brain, that's not good. Okay, so soft drinks, sugar, salt. Salt been associated with increased risk, salty foods. And as you probably know from our last meat talk, you know, we found that sugar is produced from salty foods and sugar meaning fructose. Fruit, you know, just brief reminder to everyone that table sugar is sucrose, but it's actually two sugars. It's fructose and glucose bound together. And so table sugar contains fructose and glucose. And fructose is what we think is the bad guy. We think glucose isn't great either. Because when you eat a lot of glucose, first off, some of it gets converted to fructose. So glucose is another source of fructose. But we also, I agree that chronically stimulating insulin with glucose probably isn't good either. But it turns out that the fructose is probably more important in the brain. So foods, the foods that are associated with obesity are the ones associated with Alzheimer's. And obesity is, if you have obesity, you have an increased risk for Alzheimer's. Interestingly, as a person develops Alzheimer's, they often lose weight. It's kind of a, a phenomenon that's been observed in a lot of people with Alzheimer's that in the months before, even before they're diagnosed, they often start to lose weight. And, and it might relate to a variety of mechanisms. There, there's different theories. I, you know, I can go through them. But you know, one possibility is that as you start developing dementia, you may actually reduce your food intake and start losing weight uh, just because you're not maintaining your nutrition. Anyway, bottom line is diabetes is a big risk factor. So, you know, if you've got metabolic syndrome, you've got something chalked up against you, but it doesn't mean you can't turn it around. And your intermittent fasting protocols and, you know, low-carb diets, these things are fantastic ways to help turn around this process. Okay, so anyway, so we've got these foods and conditions associated with meta with the development of Dementia, also like trauma, like people who smack their head when in football matches and, you know, things like this, uh, you get a concussion from a car accident that can increase your risk. And so, you know, it's been kind of a mystery, you know, how do all these things link together to cause Alzheimer's? And so the fructose theory came out of this. And basically, here's how it goes. This is the fructose theory. The first thing is that fructose causes insulin resistance. And, you know, it is so documented in systemically, like in the body. I mean, I've induced insulin resistance in people with sugar and in animals, uh, and we know the mechanism, and it induces low-grade inflammation, and it reduces ATP in, in cells. So that biosignature in the brain sounds like a fructose biosignature. 
The only question in the puzzle is that when you eat sugar, most of the fructose is that we get rid of in our intestine and our liver. And there is a little that spills over that gets to the brain, but it's not a lot. And so the question has been, you know, why, if it's fructose, is, does the fructose have to get to the brain is, or is it kind of a, an effect from the body? And what we've discovered is that our group, as well as a couple other groups, including a great group of scientists at Yale, but what we found is that the brain can make fructose and the brain makes fructose when you eat carbs and the brain makes fructose when you eat uh, sugar and the brain makes fructose when you eat salt. So the exact foods that are associated with increased risk for Alzheimer's also increase fructose in the brain. And uh, the group at Yale actually did a study in people and they found that if they infused glucose into the vein of a people of a person that after about 30 minutes fructose levels start going up in the brain of humans okay so we now know that these foods that we're eating can raise fructose levels in the brain we also know that if we give sugar or fructose to a laboratory rat that it will after about six weeks it will have four weeks actually it's even quicker like three weeks, will have trouble getting through a maze. So actually all rats, all animals have trouble getting through a maze, but we can time it. So you create this maze and you, you know, and you can time how long it takes to get through the maze to the other side. And let's say it takes three minutes and 30 seconds. Well, if you take that same animal and you try it the next day, it will slowly improve and after a few weeks, it might get through in two minutes instead of three and a half minutes. So you can look at the improvement, but if you give it sugar, it doesn't improve at all. It will stay at three. It's like every time it goes in there, it's new. Can't remember where to go. And if you look in the brain, guess what you see in a, in a sugar-fed rat or a fructose-fed rat? You see mitochondrial dysfunction. You see a fall in ATP. You see insulin resistance in the brain. You see inflammation in the brain. You see all the precursors. And a group in Egypt actually gave fructose for 18 weeks to a rat, which is a long time, but not too long compared to like its lifespan. And they found amyloid plaque and tau protein after 18 weeks. That's scary. You know, that's the whole story. Now, how about people? Well, if you... Look at their spinal, I mean, they've studies with, with autopsy studies, unfortunately, but autopsy studies. And for example, they did one study where they looked at nine people who had Alzheimer's versus nine age match control autopsies. And the people with Alzheimer's had five to six fold higher fructose levels in their brain. And also the other components that are, are when you make fructose, there are other things you look for. They found all those too. And then the enzymes involved in fructose uh, metabolism, they found those elevated too. Everything was high. So now you've got this, the diet is associated. You can create it in the laboratory animal. The levels are high in the brain. And so we got the whole, it's sort of like the whole story, but there's a big kind of interesting catch, which I think is the most compelling evidence of all. And that, 
is we have a mechanism for why this is happening. So why would sugar cause dementia? You know, why would we think that fructose might be a cause of dementia? Well, maybe it's because fructose has a biologic action that normally is thought to be good. But if you keep hitting it, it can cause dementia. So it turns out that, you know, our studies found that fructose is involved in survival. Animals in the wild eat berries and tons of fructose so they can survive the winter. So getting a little bit of obesity actually provides them the energy they need because they can break the fat down when they're hibernating, for example. And so being a little insulin resistant can be a good thing. You know, it reduces the amount of energy used by the muscle and is a way of kind of helping to reserve the energy for other parts of the system. But in order to, it turns out that our work on fructose showed that it has another effect, which is to stimulate foraging. And foraging is a process that an animal uses to help it find food. And it's actually a biologic response. So, you know, to forage, you, you know, if you want to forage effectively, you, you want to be a little hungry and you want to be thirsty and you want to be hyperactive a little bit because you got to get out there and find things and get back. And you have to be impulsive because you want what, you know, you have to, be ready to go into areas that maybe not be that safe. You have to be a little bit of a risk taker. You can't focus on anything too long because you got to look, be looking all the time where the food is. You, if you find it, you may want to binge eat it because you, you, you've got to eat and keep going before the predators come. And you have to be a little brave. You have to be, uh, you know, maybe aggressive if, if you have to fight over the food. But basically, you, you have to change your personality if you're going to try to uh, find food effectively. So it turns out that foraging is controlled by certain regions of the brain. And so the brain has areas that stimulate foraging. And they, they also have areas that kind of block things like control, self-control, that allow you to be more impulsive. They block, they, for example... If you stimulate foraging in an animal, you know what happens? You try to stimulate one part of the brain called the anterior cingulate, and you try to inhibit another part of the brain like called the posterior cingulate, and you like try to inhibit the cortex of the brain so that you can, you want to be thinking, but you don't want to be thinking too much. You know, you want to be able to say, okay, well, I'm, I'm willing to stick into that lion's den. There may be a lion there, but I'm going to steal that food behind them, you know, so... You have to have that, you know, so you have to turn on some regions of the brain and turn off others. And when we give fructose to a human in that first 15 minutes, we can see all these kinds of effects. We can see a stimulation of the anterior cingulate, and we can see an inhibition of the posterior cingulate, and we can see an inhibition of the self-control areas, and we can see inhibition of the areas involved in memory, and we can see stimulation of the visual cortex so that you can see the food well. It's amazing. Fructose in humans really seems to show this. And likewise, if you give glucose, you get the opposite effects. It's kind of like satisfying. I got my fuel. I don't need to forage. You got the fructose, though. It's saying, hey, 
Where's the food? And the reason is because fructose lowers the ATP in the cell and glucose doesn't. So it, it makes you feel like you're starving. So it triggers this response. So what's fantastic is I was looking at this pattern and I recognized that that pattern is very similar to the pattern of what areas of the brain are typically involved in, in Alzheimer's. So like the visual cortex is spared in Alzheimer's, the anterior cingulate is spared in Alzheimer's, and the areas that are involved in Alzheimer's are the areas where fructose inhibits the blood flow, where it inhibits the metabolism. So it seems like uh, what happened is, you know, evolutionarily, a long time ago, we developed this sensitivity to fructose to help us survive. And we used the fructose when we ate lots of it. You know, like when the berries were present, you know, we would eat this stuff and it would help us forage for food and help us. It would miss meant to help us. But now, instead of eating, you know, small numbers of berries and this and that and for short periods of time, we are slam dunking. We are eating so much sugar and salt and all these things that produce fructose in the brain that we are, we go into a foraging. We're binge eating, we're foraging, we're impulsive, we're developing ADHD, we're developing these behavioral disorders, and we are starving our brains. And when we starve the brains chronically, guess what happens? You can get dementia. And so um, I think that, I don't want you to go, whoever's listening to me, I don't want you to say, oh my God, I'm never going to eat chocolate again. You know, if you can get away without eating sugar, bless you. You know, you probably will do better. Uh, it's very small amounts of sugar, you know, may not, uh, you know, are, are quite different than from, for example, a soft drink or a chocolate cake. But anyway, I'm not telling you never to eat sugar. I'm not telling you never to eat, you know, bread and all these things. In fact, uh, you know, unless you really want to be on a keto diet and the keto diets can be great for a lot of people. But nevertheless, what I'm telling you is that the current diets that we're eating is too much. There's too much to eat carbs. We're eating the, the diet, uh, going to the fast food, eating the processed food is not good. It is a toxin. Sugar, you know, and Lustig says, Rob Lustig says, sugar is a toxin. He's got a very good point. You know, and because we're all eating, well, those of people on the normal Western diet are eating too much. And it's going to get, it's going to catch up with us. Absolutely. And I know one of the questions that listeners will be wondering is, are we differentiating between fructose versus high fructose corn syrup? That was number one. And when we're talking about salt, are we talking about iodized processed salt? Or are we also talking about natural forms of salt, like sea salt, Celtic sea salt? Because inevitably, those are going to be the questions I know I'm going to be asked. And since you're the expert, help us understand, are these are these similar? Are they dissimilar? Is high fructose corn syrup, I would imagine, is way worse than just plain fructose? Oh, yeah. But- yeah, absolutely. So, So let's go through that. So not all fructose is the same, not all salts the same, but in general, let's just talk about it. So fructose, when it's metabolized, drops the ATP level in the cell. So fructose is fructose when it gets to wherever it goes. However, 
fructose in natural fruits is not really the same as fructose in a soft drink. The fructose is the same, but it's the accompaniments. When you eat natural fruits, you've got fiber and vitamin C and flavonols and all these things. We can actually show in animal studies that flavonols can block some of fructose effects, blocks the ATP depletion to some extent, especially like luteol and asthol. Epicatechin in fruits can block some of it. We've actually done clinical studies. Potassium, if you raise potassium a little bit, that counters some of the effects of fructose. It's amazing. We did it in an animal. Lowering uric acid or substances that lower uric acid can, can help to reduce the fructose effects. Vitamin C is really quite effective, um, but we don't want to eat huge amounts of vitamin C because you can get kidney stones. But still, you know, vitamin C is an antagonist. It blocks some of the effects of fructose. So depending on how you, you, you know, if you're eating a natural fruit, we've done studies. Natural fruits are safe, okay? Natural fruits, if you just eat one fruit, for example, no problem. I don't think you're going to have any problem. Now, if you eat 10 fruits, like a, a orangutan trying to get, gain weight for the dry season, they'll eat like 100 fruit at one setting, you're going to activate it, okay? If you eat enough fructose, it will overcome even the good stuff. Juice. I don't like fruit juice because, um, you know, it's concentrated. But like, you know, like if you eat fructose, for example, in the middle of a meal where you got all these other things like fibers and stuff that are slowing the absorption, it's going to have a less effect than if you eat fructose as, as a snack when there's no other food around. If you eat, drink fructose and you load it up a huge amount in a short period of time, the concentration, it's the concentration that's the problem, that will drop the ATP levels. If you took a soft drink and you did a tiny sip every hour for 10 hours, it's just going to be a calorie. You're not going to get the amount of fructose at one time to actually lower the ATP significantly. So it's, it's all that. So it's more complicated. But what we do know is that if you eat a lot of foods and it really tastes sweet, you're probably, you're probably getting a, a bit of fructose there that more than you want. And uh, you probably want to try to avoid, you know, desserts, pastries, you know, sugar, candies, you know, all those things. They, you know, that's going to add up. If you're worried about the fructose in a carrot, don't worry about it, you know. It's the intestine actually removes about four or five grams. So the problem with salt is when the salt concentration goes up in the blood, that triggers the fructose production and it triggers it from carbs. So if, you, if you're on a low-carb diet and you're eating salt, you don't really have a lot of carbs to convert to fructose. So uh, salt in a low-carb diet has actually been thought to be helpful to, because people can often become a little salt-depleted. But if you are eating carbs like uh, French fries, <laughs> you're in trouble because the salt's going to help convert the carbs to fructose. But can you block the salt effects? Yeah, you can. You can do it by with water. So if you drink enough water so that you don't get thirsty, then you're safe. And what about types of salt? Well, I mean, there are a lot of people who used to get hypothyroid in the days when there wasn't iodide available. So I'm a believer in iodized salt. I love sea salt. It's got a lot of other things in it, like magnesium and stuff that's really healthy. I'm not anti-salt. 
I just am pro water. <laughs> so what I mean is if you're going to eat salty food, drink a lot of water with it. As soon as you're thirsty, you're triggering the switch to convert the glucose to fructose. And then, uh, you know, if you're a marathon runner, you got to watch how much water you drink because you can get water intoxicated. And if you're, uh, you know, if you have heart disease or kidney disease, you should talk to your doctor before you eat. Drink tons of water. But pretty much everyone can drink about two to three liters of water a day. So, you know, that's a good target. And if you're exercising, you probably want to drink a little bit more. But like, uh, don't drink gallons and gallons of water without talking to your doctor. Yeah, it's interesting. Back in my ER days, many years ago, (laughs) we used to see people that were water intoxicated. And so it's like too much of any one thing is not beneficial. But I know I talk a lot about hydration and electrolytes being very, very important. And so I love that you thank you for providing that distinction, because that was one of the questions that came in, you know, should I be fearful of salt. And I, and my message is generally no, but if you're eating less processed foods, whether you add a little bit of salt to your water or to your foods, as long as you're staying hydrated, that's really the key. That was the big takeaway for me from our last conversation. Don't wait till you get dehydrated. Yeah. The other, the other thing is to realize that we get a lot of salt from processed food and like popcorns and things like where people love the salt and just be careful with processed food, be careful with popcorn. I don't know if you've ever done the experiment, but if you eat salted popcorn, your weight goes up. Like the next day, it'll be like a kilogram higher. You'll gain like two or three pounds overnight. And we, a lot of that is water from the salt and water retention, but the salt is also stimulating glycogen. And so you dramatically increase your glycogen. And when you increase your glycogen, you have to burn that before you burn fat. So it's, oh, I have not seen studies, but I would predict that popcorn, salted popcorn would predict obesity. Oh, I can. I, I, I think that it. it would be a, it's a risk factor. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. 
I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armra Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armra's colostrum strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armrest colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. Well, and it's interesting because when you go to the movies, which I probably don't do as much of now that my kids are teenagers and they don't want to go to the movies with us. So if I'm just going with my husband, we always pass on the popcorn and I remind my kids, I'm like, that's actually not butter that they're putting on your popcorn that you're consuming. And since they're teenagers and they're very metabolically healthy, if they eat that every once in a while, but the understanding that you know, it's my understanding that about 30 grams of carbohydrate is what our body can process in a meal if we're metabolically healthy. And if you're sitting down and eating a bucket of popcorn, <laughs> how many grams of carbohydrate you've, you've, you've ingested? And then on top of that, how dehydrated you later become? Oh, yeah. Maybe. No, it's really bad. Now, but you, you bring up a really good point about young people being metabolically healthy. You know, we're born really with very good metabolic health and, and it takes, uh, and the, the actual, you know, the average kid will have fairly good metabolic health, but you can poison it with sugar and salt. And so, you know, we're seeing childhood obesity, but it's true. Like if you have a 22 year old who's super athletic and doesn't have an ounce of fat, you can give them sugar uh, acutely and you won't see too much of a problem with their mitochondria because the mitochondria are super healthy. It's like, uh, you know, you can't knock it down acutely with like one hit with a hammer. But if you keep hitting with a hammer, 
<laughs> even the strongest nail will go into the hardest wood. And so, so over time, you, you do, you, you will see a problem, but it's true. If the healthier you are, like if you're a Tour de France biker, you can drink soft drinks and, you know, it seems like it will have no effect on you, but probably it is a tiny bit. Yeah. It's interesting. You can't detect it. Yeah. It's interesting because I think there's a lot of misinformation that kind of floats around. I think I said on Twitter recently that I do eat a little bit of fruit, not a lot, but a little bit. And people were aghast. I thought you just ate meat. I thought you were low carb. And I said, well, I'm metabolically healthy. So if I want raspberries or blueberries or, you know, a just green banana, it's not impacting my metabolic health. Now, if I was a hundred pounds overweight and was not metabolically healthy and I didn't eat any vegetables and I just ate fruit, that might not be the best choice, but I think it's helping people understand that, you know, if you are metabolically healthy, you probably have a little bit more wiggle room than someone who is not. Right. I agree with you hundred percent. Exactly. As usual, I pretty much agree with what you say. Oh, well, thank you. I know one of the things that we had discussed prior to the interview was talking about the role of sugar and alcohol. And I know that we've talked around this subject on the podcast with different guests for differing reasons, but you in particular had said that there's a lot of emerging research about this interrelationship that I thought would be particularly relevant to listeners in terms of practical takeaways for them for their lifestyle. Yeah. Well, the first thing is probably all remember the famous uh, stuff that Rob Lustig would push forth and point out how alcohol is or sugar is alcohol without the buzz is his famous phrase. And he pointed out how sugar is a major cause of fatty liver and of uh, metabolic problems. And alcohol also causes fatty liver. And sugar is associated, you know, that fatty liver can progress to end-stage liver disease. And alcohol can cause end-stage liver disease, cirrhosis, you know. And so the two are in parallel. They go in parallel. And uh, it's also true for the liking of alcohol and the liking of sugar. So it's been known for a long time that if you uh, like alcohol, you probably like sugar. And likewise, if you like sugar, you very much like alcohol. And it's not just the individual, it's the family. So if you have a father that likes alcohol, you probably like alcohol too. And you probably like sugar. And there's another uh, well-known finding, which is that like um, if you... Uh, are an alcoholic and you get admitted to the hospital and they take away your alcohol, uh, you almost always will start drinking soft drinks, even in the hospital. And um, you can, I mean, I pointed out when I go on rounds, you know, uh, to my residents, you know, just, I want you to just look at the side table and tell me what you see. And 99% of the time they have, soft drinks on the on the table. So now this, what I'm just telling you, is not new. This has been known for a long, long time. And of course, gosh, we know that combining alcohol and sugar is just one of the favorite things, the margaritas and the pina coladas. And people like sweet wines and port wines. And, you know, I mean, so it's 
well known that, you know, a seven and seven, or gin, you know, gin with, uh, you know, or some, these various drinks often have sugar in it. Okay. So that part's known. So here's what is really breaking science. And uh, our group, as well as another group, did this work. And, and also a group in China. So there's actually three groups that were involved in this. But what the finding was, was that when you drink alcohol, that alcohol stimulates that enzyme that makes fructose. And it works kind of like salt, you know. So you know how when you drink alcohol, you'll get thirsty? That thirst is similar to like what if you eat salt. And if you eat salt, a lot of salt, that activates an enzyme that converts glucose to fructose. So it's converting carbs. So it's not the alcohol that's being turned into fructose. The alcohol is the catalyst. It's the thing that stimulates the conversion of glucose to fructose. And uh, so it's like, for example, if you go into a bar and you start eating chips or pretzels or something with your beer, it's not the alcohol in the beer that's, the, that's causing the conversion. It's, I mean, it's causing the conversion, but it's the carbs that are being converted from the pretzel to, into fructose. And maybe I said that wrong, but anyway... The bottom line is when you drink alcohol, you generate fructose. And uh, this group from, I believe they're from Kentucky, published a really nice paper that included uh, biopsies of human livers from people, you know, liver biopsy from people admitted with alcohol problems. And they showed that this enzyme that converts glucose to fructose was high in the liver, as were fructose levels. Now, fructose in the liver is known to cause fatty liver and alcohol causes fatty liver. And like, if you give alcohol plus sugar into an animal, it gets really bad fatty liver quickly. But now we have another possibility that the alcohol could stimulate the fructose and that the fatty liver we see with alcohol may actually be due to the fructose. So this is where we come in. So what we did was we gave alcohol to animals that cannot metabolize fructose. So they can make fructose, but they can't turn it into fat. And so when we gave the alcohol, we, the animals were protected from fatty liver. And so we now know that the liver disease from alcohol is due to fructose. It isn't like the two are the same. I mean, in terms of how they work, one actually dries fructose up and is causing fatty liver from making fructose. And then the fructose is metabolized. That means that alcohol, fatty liver, cirrhosis is a fructose disease, you know, from alcohol-induced liver disease is a fructose-dependent disease. Now, admittedly, our paper on this is not published yet. But the data is very, very strong. And so, you know, I feel confident in the data. The other big surprise is that we found that when we blocked metabolism of fructose, animals reduced their liking of sugar. They still like sugar, but they just don't keep, it's like it blocks the addiction. And we found that the same was true for alcohol. 
So if we block fructose metabolism, we can block alcohols in the animal, okay? And so we, uh, we have a grant from the National Institute of Health to try to make a drug to block fructose metabolism as a way to treat alcoholism. Because every, you know, classic treatments for alcoholism is like to block transmitters in the brain. And, you know, it's dangerous when you do that because some transmitter, you know, their transmitters up there, the neurotransmitters, they're all doing things that are both good and bad. So you don't really want to block, you know, a lot of the neurotransmission and these, you know, these different mediators completely. You want to have them function. So it's better to go to the root of it. So we can block fructose metabolism then we're hoping that we're going to actually come out with uh, safer drugs, better drugs. So that's what we're trying to do. We, we still have a place to go, but uh, if you're a mouse, I can block alcoholism. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't gotten to the point where I can do it in the person yet, but you know, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that this will be a new way to help treat alcoholism. Yeah. And it's interesting because as you were talking, that that's that was my thought process is I'm sure that the pharmaceutical industry would love to be able to help formulate drugs that can treat this because as we were talking about before we started recording, I think that especially in lieu of the past three years in particular, I think most people were probably drinking more alcohol than yeah, they had been previously. And I would imagine that it is probably heightened individuals awareness of how much they drink and whether or not they struggle with their relationship with alcohol. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting is, you know, you can kind of dial it in. So if you, you know, you can block the alcoholism fairly significantly, or like partially, at least it looks like, you know, you can get a setting where the animals will still drink alcohol, but like 50% less. Yeah. So that's anyway. So that also raises the possibility that this could be a mechanism to uh, cause dementia because we just talked about how fructose can cause dementia and alcohol is also associated with, you know, a loss of brain matter and, and the increased risk for dementia. And, and so, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of <laughs> everything's metabolic. <laughs> no, it, it is. And it and it's interesting. Um, I have a, a family member that has a longstanding history of alcoholism, and we have watched this family member's cognitive status really decrease substantially, especially over the last several years. Because in light of the pandemic, not being able to get out and be yeah. around other people, just more drinking that uh further exacerbated this. And it makes a great deal of sense that if it's fructose that's driving a lot of these mechanistic principles yeah. that it would impact their cognition quite substantially. Right. Yeah, I know it's uh, uh, for a long time, uh, there was an argument that one or two drinks a day were safe, but what's happening is as we get more information, it is a little bit concerning that uh, there may be risks even with, drinking two drinks a day, possibly even one drink a day. So I'm not, a, I mean, I drink occasionally and I like a glass of wine here and there, but, um, but I'm trying to drink a little bit less the more I, I study this. I, bet. I realize that maybe it's not quite as safe as I thought. I always thought that one drink a day was fine, maybe two drinks a day, but I'm now down to the area of, you know, trying to limit to maybe one drink a day or not drink many days, you know. You know, why do we need to drink? We right. don't really need to drink. And if it's not super healthy, maybe we should, you know, really try to cut it back. Right. It's interesting. And, 
Well, and I think in many ways, after interviewing so many experts, I think in particular alcoholism or people that have a propensity for drinking quite a bit of alcohol, it's to, you know, work through uncomfortable feelings. And and this is where I think there's this complex interplay of behavioral science and and the work that you're doing and, and helping people understand the behaviors that they make. Now, one other thing I would love to touch on before we close up our conversation today is to talk about the interrelationship between mood and fructose. And so this is something I find really interesting as a parent of children who are now teenagers, the children that I saw that, you know, had the most impulsive behavior, the ones that were probably on medications for ADD, ADHD, what they were eating has a direct impact on behavior. And so there's a lot of evolving research in particular about ADHD and bipolar disorder being linked to sugar intake, fructose, and also metabolic disease. Yeah. So it's absolutely true. There's uh, certain behavioral disorders are really linked with sugar intake and with fructose intake and with high uric acid. And uric acid uh, is produced by fructose. And uh, one is bipolar disease. Oh, boy, it's really linked. And and same thing with ADHD. It's very highly linked in this recent umbrella analysis that was published um, uh, I think it was in the Lancet, uh, oh no, the BMJ rather, that found a link with ADHD again. And uh, we've published on this linkage and it, it kind of makes sense. ADHD has a lot of kind of foraging type behavior, impulsiveness, hyperactivity, inability to concentrate. And also um, people with ADHD tend to have a higher uric acid and bipolar disease, interesting Bipolar disease, uh, the first effective treatments were based on the, were, were, were done in people with bipolar disease who happened to have uh, gout and high uric acid because there's an association. And way back in the 1800s, people started giving lithium because it can help lower uric acid levels. And then they saw that the lithium was helping the bipolar disease. And they thought that the two were unrelated, but we're now going back to that relationship and realizing that there is a relationship between uric acid and bipolar disease. And there've been a number of randomized trials where the uric acid lowering drugs like allopurinol have been shown to improve bipolar disease. So, you know, and fructose levels are high in the brains of bipolar patients and, uh, you know, been published. And so I think there probably really is a, a true risk factor association between sugar and ADHD and bipolar disease, you can induce uh, behaviors in animals that are similar. And there's a mechanism, you know, when you drop AT, you know, the quick rapid burning of ATP is associated with a hyperactive response. And, and then, you know, there's kind of a crash when the ATP levels fall and, and no one's really done really good studies to link these biologic effects of fructose with ADHD, where they can look at this. And uh, I've written about this in my book, Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. And I've, you know, we've published on this as well. So I think that, you know, it's definitely a risk factor. Is it the only thing? Probably not. There are probably other things driving it. But, you know, I think that it could explain it. You know, one of the interesting findings is that there's data that ADHD has been increasing with the obesity epidemic. And one of the aspects of that is that, you know, that's really linked with intake of sugars and high fructose corn syrup and juices uh, in children. And 
So what I recommend if you if you're a parent and you have kids that get hyperactive when they eat sugar, um, I would really recognize that sugar isn't just causing like hyperactivity during the time they're eating sugar. But if you chronically are feeding them sugar and juices, that it may lead to, you know, more chronic changes. They can suppress that mitochondrial energy production chronically. And then they're kind of like not going to do so well. They're going to start developing more type ADHD symptoms that can become persistent. And so I really, you know, omega-3 foods, walnuts, you know, vitamin C, I, I, I recommend omega-3 foods. I recommend cutting back on high glycemic carbs, cut back on those French fries and the hamburger buns and, you know, try to cut back on sugar in every way you can, high fructose corn syrup. If you have a kid who you're worried about developing ADHD or bipolar disease and try to get that, you know, this group probably needs the greatest attention because, you know, obesity is bad, but it's a lot of people with, who are obese do still do pretty well in life. You know, it doesn't have to be an end-all thing. But if you have really severe bipolar disease or ADHD, it's really a, a handicap. It's really a serious handicap. And, and we need to be thinking of brain health. We need to do more thinking about how to keep the brain healthy. And eating healthy foods is probably... The best thing you can do, natural fruits, okay, not fruit juice, um, you know, cut out the soft drinks, just get rid of them and uh, really cut back on processed foods, you know, kettle corn, bad, okay, because you got sugar <laughs> and salt and carbs, yeah, caramel corn, you know, I used to love caramel corn when I was a kid, but I would say, you know, with the salted peanuts in it, well, that's probably not the best combination. Well, so, it's interesting. Every time I walk through Chicago O'Hare's airport, they always have these, you know, big stores where they're selling like huge bins of multi-flavored yeah. popcorn varieties. Yeah. And I told my husband, because of course my teenagers were like, oh, you know, buy us some popcorn is what they said. And I, I said, as soon as I read the ingredient list, I was like, I can't buy this. I don't care how fun it is. We'll make it at home. But it was like seed oils on top of you know, yeah. just a, a bunch of stuff you don't want to be eating, like make it at home. If you really are dying for some popcorn, make it at home. Yeah. It's a whole lot easier. Yeah, they do that. And also like um, cones, they have these little cones of, of nuts, which are nuts are probably healthy, but then they coat them with cinnamon and sugar and salt and they taste really good and you keep eating them and they're really bad for you. So yeah, no, I know I'm a vulnerable person when it comes to those kinds of things. Cause as a kid, I, you know, it was something I always wanted. And, you know, what keeps me healthy is wisdom and being strong. But yeah, you know, it's, uh, and, you know, it, it doesn't hurt if you do the science and you make, you see what it can do. You know, it does kind of Good reinforce. You, right? <laughs> you don't want to be the, the lab rat, you know? No, for so. sure not. I always enjoy these conversations. I know it'll be invaluable for listeners. We'll have to have you come back again and we can talk about the interrelationship of fructose and cancer risk. Please let my listeners know how to connect with you, how to purchase your books, how to support your research, et cetera. Well, thank you very much. So, you know, as you mentioned, I'm a researcher. I'm at the University of Colorado. You know, I publish a lot. So Richard J. Johnson, you can find me on 
published literature and reach me that way by email and so forth. But I, I have a book, Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. I have a website, drrichardjohnson.com. I have a Instagram, Richard, Dr. Richard J. Johnson. And, and my book is available pretty much you know, through all sources, Amazon, Books of Million, Barnes and Noble. <laughs> so, and uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, Cynthia. It's always fantastic to, to work with you, to uh, oh, talk to you. Thank, thank you. you. Likewise. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.